The Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 118, verses 1 to 2 and 19 to 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on familiar words of Jesus this morning, this Palm Sunday, that your spirit would be with us and help us to know how we might apply them to our lives, our hearts, our, our context of living, our community itself of this church. So lead us, we ask, in understanding and becoming doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen. So we said today's Palm Sunday. We begin Holy Week today. And Palm Sunday is the time when the church throughout the world and throughout really much of its history has sort of situated itself and reflected on this story of Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem on uh, the donkey. And the crowds enthusiastically welcome him. They're waving palm branches. They're doing symbolic things that recognize that he is Israel's Messiah, essentially. And they're exuberant about him. They're enthusiastic about Jesus. But as the week trails on, uh, many other things will happen. Jesus will uh, wash the disciples' feet. Jesus will celebrate Passover with his disciples. And in that context, he'll inaugurate the meal that we celebrate week after week in the, in the, in the Eucharist. Uh, and then Jesus will be taken into custody uh, unjustly, and he will be tried, and he will be crucified. And so the crowds that were enthusiastically welcoming Jesus will turn on him, and they will sort of go the other way, and they'll join the status quo chorus of crucify him. This Palm Sunday, we're thinking about another moment when Jesus is with crowds. <laughs> it's the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the famous teaching of Jesus as we're concluding our study. Um, and here, Matthew just simply notes about the crowds at the very end is that they were astonished by the teaching of Jesus because he taught not like a scribe. Now, what does that mean? Maybe an analogy that might be helpful uh, if, you've, if you've ever attended um, the university, you've been in school in some context, you've had professors or teachers who have spent time studying different things so that they might share those things with you. If, if it's an English class, for example, you might read a novel and the professor spends time understanding the plot line of the novel and the character development, and they come into class and they teach you about what they've observed. But Jesus actually taught differently. It's almost as though he were the novelist himself. He's sort of drawn into and caught up into the plot line in a very, very different way. And so people recognized that his teaching was different. It wasn't like the other people that taught them in their society or even their religious context. There was something really unique about Jesus. So let's think back over this sermon as a whole if you will, when we first started, we said we were doing this as a way of understanding the politic of Jesus in our world. In other words, what is the kind of community relationships that Jesus imagines us living into? Or to put it a little bit differently, how did Jesus understand human flourishing? And the Sermon on the Mount begins to unpack all of the dimensions of what it means to inhabit God's blessed land the community that he's bringing into existence because of his love. The Sermon on the Mount is a discipleship passage, if you will. It's a passage and a section of teaching in which Jesus talks to us about things that need to change. And if you remember back at the beginning, Matthew prefaces it with Jesus went throughout Judea preaching a gospel of repentance because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. In other words, Jesus wanted us to repent, that is to turn around from something. Now, 
Most of the time when we talk about repentance individually or we talk about it in the context of the church, we're almost always sort of referencing there's some, some wrongdoing that I need to turn from, right? There's some sin in my life personally. But here, Jesus isn't so much talking about sins as He is the great misdirection of humanity, the great sin of our alienation from God or our… our um, the way we think about meaning in the world or what it means to be human in the world that's not informed by God's very presence, His loving presence. And so what Jesus is inviting the community to turn toward is Himself as Messiah and in Him the descriptions that He's describing about what does it mean for you to be human, to really truly live into your vocation as a human being who bears the image and likeness of God in our world. As we sort of got near the end of the sermon last week, we saw that at the very center of this community is what? It's a heavenly Father who delights to do good. God may not be as you've previously thought about Him. And so Jesus is always sort of revealing to us the invisible God, the God that we don't know, and He's revealing Him to be a God who absolutely loves His children, loves you delights in you. And so when we speak to God in prayer, we're not sort of trying to persuade Him or strong-arm Him or to sort of make sure we can sort of get Him on our side. We're rather sort of coming to a Father who just says, you're here. What is it? Surprise me. I delight to do good. So Jesus is teaching us all these things about who God is as He calls us into a very different way of being formed and shaped as human beings in the world. He closes this sermon down with three binaries, right, that frame our response of repentance and faith, if you want to put it that way. And they are the narrow gate versus the wide gate, the true versus the false prophet, the wise versus the unwise builder. So let's think about these three things. So the narrow gate versus the wide gate. Jesus almost certainly is just pulling an illustration right, that everyone that would have ever gone into Jerusalem would know, or any other walled city in the ancient world. They would have known that there are these larger gates that are more road-like in which crowds can sort of move through. They can parade through. But then there are the narrow gates, the smaller gates that are more like if you've ever been out in the countryside and you've, you've driven over a, a one-lane bridge. It's a little bit more you have to wait for someone to pass through before you pass through, right? So, Jesus is what? He's giving us this image of the way of the masses, the way of the status quo, if you will, versus the way of the disciple and the follower of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, sees Himself as the gate. He is the narrow gate, and He's urging us to consider where we are. Are we becoming more intentional about following Jesus, about attending to the teaching of Jesus, of understanding the teaching of Jesus, or are we sort of going the way of the status quo, just the best practices of our broken world? It is a lot easier to agree with Jesus or even to be astonished by His authority of His teaching than it is to actually get in the way and walk with Jesus to enact the things that He says, the, the sort of law of love that He describes. And here Jesus is asking us to be intentional and not go with the status quo. It's easier to stay with the flow of the crowds than to sort of take Jesus' teaching about God's kingdom seriously and let it 
impact and shape the way we live life. If you just think forward to the things we'll talk about this coming Good Friday, you know, in that particular moment of Jesus' life, it's when the, the crowds have sort of moved back toward the status quo, away from the narrow gate, if you will. And it doesn't matter that if the political relationships of that day or the economic relationships of that day or the, the religious and spiritual relationships of that day were not working for them, they've still gone the way of the status quo, the status quo rather, and moved away from the person of Jesus and who he is, even though the world as they knew it burdened them. So here Jesus assures us that the other way, the broad way, is a way that will only take you further into brokenness and further into sin and further into destruction, rather than into the world of the blessed kingdom of God that Jesus says is near because he's here, he's near. So the question for the crowds in that moment when they're just listening to this very simple drop-in illustration that they could imagine quickly from their minds and their experiences of going into cities, it's, well, where are you? Am I going to be attentive to who Jesus is? Am I going to go in the narrow way or am I going to go with the status quo? And that's a question that perhaps we ought to ask our own selves the second binary that Jesus begins to delve into is this notion of the false prophets. He's really giving a warning against false prophets. That, uh, and so we're meant to sort of imagine this sort of contrast of who are the true prophets and who are the false prophets? Who are the true preachers and the false preachers? Who are the true teachers and the false leaders? The true leaders and the false leaders? Who are those and how do you distinguish between them? Jesus urges us and encourages us, those that are in the narrow gate, right, to discern the leaders that they listen to and follow, discern something about their lives. Now, this is interesting because it's a moment when the crowds are what? Astonished with Jesus' teaching. And yet Jesus says, it's not your astonishment that should lead you to sort of be in the way of Jesus. Think about the fruit and the character of the life of that leader. That's where Jesus pushes us. Some prophets are remarkably gifted teachers. Some prophets are remarkably gifted at sort of dramatic ministry. But Jesus urges us to think about something deeper, this sort of integrity of a leader in which the interior of a life and the external of a life match up. They go together. They're not in conflict with one another. Jesus says, some of your leaders may be more like wolves, but they're wearing sheep's clothing. It's an illustration, again, of costuming, right? And we know what it means to put on a costume. But these are really good costumes, apparently, in which it's hard to distinguish because if you looked on their success, the crowds are following them. If you listen to the boldness or the power of their teaching, there's some boldness and power in their teaching and preaching. If you look at sort of the drama of deliverance even, like we cast out demons in your name, Jesus says they will say, right? It's not enough just to see the sort of fruit that's out there or the success aspects of fruitfulness, but Jesus says you need to consider the fruit of their lives. What are they like? Are they like me? Are they embodying the kind of law of love that you've heard me talking about throughout the Sermon on the Mount, right? Are they embodying the very likeness of Jesus in the world? What's the fruit of their lives? Not their powerful words and success, but what kind of person are they becoming? 
And then what kind of persons are those persons in that community becoming? What are they like? That's what we need to be looking at. Are they like Jesus in their compassion, the way they show up in the world and their presence to another human being, even if you have to say something that's hard and difficult, right? Are they saying it because what they long for in that hard and difficult conversation? You can imagine Jesus' conversation here with the Pharisees, right? Those hard words that are sometimes spoken, they're always spoken to turn them to the true word of who Jesus is, the true word of God's love, the true word of who God wants them to be in the world as lovers. Jesus urges us to look at the fruit. Are they showing up in compassion and presence? Are they loving? Are they wise? Is the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? We could sort of pull out of other parts of the New Testament, right? Is there love and patience and kindness and forbearance in the way they relate to difficult people? Is there forgiveness of sin in their lives? Is there gentleness and meekness? In other words, are they growing up in the likeness of Jesus? That's how Jesus urges us to think about leadership in the church and the kinds of leaders we go after. It's a really timely sort of thing to think about, this binary, right? Because the American evangelical church is as fractured as it has ever been, perhaps. And its fracture relates in part to our struggle with this binary and really our forgetfulness around the teaching of Jesus, that the fruitfulness of someone's life counts for something. And it's actually how we begin to measure whether we should be going after them and living with them but we live in a moment when some Christians have really embraced an ends justifies the means to some sense of the moral order, to some shoring up of culture, to some shoring up of a society that we prefer. But it really looks so little like the Sermon on the Mount, so little of the kind of community that Jesus is calling us to embody and express in our world so this is a really sobering warning as we think about Jesus' call that we discern the character of our leaders. Kristen Dumez is a professor at Calvin College, and she recently wrote a book that came out this past year called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. It is a startling book to read. I just finished it. And it's hard for any of us that grew up in and around these sort of American evangelical circles of the church. I count myself as one of those persons because you're reading along in this book and she's documenting sort of a long history of the corruption of the teaching of Jesus, really, that begins to sort of infiltrate it with American nationalism or aggressive masculinity or sort of more toxic forms of rugged individualism. And then she begins to look at the character of the leaders that have led these sort of, this sort of development in American Christianity, American evangelical Christianity, and you begin to realize it's so unlike the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And the character of leaders, there's just story after story after story of celebrity pastors sort of falling in dramatic ways, not embodying the love the gentleness, the compassion of Jesus, but instead stories of different kinds of abuse, whether it's abuse of authority and power or whether it's abuse of their own sexuality and the sexuality of others. Jesus urges us to evaluate character, to think about the people we follow, the ends 
never, ever, ever justifies the means in the kingdom of God or in the church of Jesus. We're always called to live in the way of Jesus always, which is a way of self-donating love. It's a way of self-sacrifice. It's a way of compassion that lays his life down for the sake of another. And Jesus said these kinds of struggles with false leaders and will be normal to our lives, and so we need to be a community that discerns between true and false prophets. So the narrow gate and the false prophets. The last binary is one that we're really familiar with because we learned the song if you, if you grew up in the church, right? It's the wise and the un, unwise builder, right? The, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, and the unwise man, the foolish person, builds his house upon the sand, and the rains come down. Well, the, the house built on the rock stands, and the house that's built on the sand sort of falls to the side. It, it sort of crumbles beneath the storms of life. It's a beautiful song that we learn as kids, but it's really a difficult saying and proverb for us to apply as adults. Jesus, of course, sees himself as the rock that God has brought into the world for us to build our lives on and around. It's the way we come into relation to him, the way we renew our relationships with one another, and the way we sort of reconnect with our vocation as human beings in the world. It's through him. It's on Jesus. And then Jesus says it has a whole lot to do with doing. That's hard for us sometimes because we forget and we fear that our doing is about getting God to like us or getting him on our side. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about because he's already told us that God is who? Your loving Father who delights in you. He delights to give you his kingdom. It's all of grace. It's all mercy. But here Jesus says, it's just not enough to be astonished by my teaching. Can you be a doer of that teaching? Can you get in the way of this narrow gate? Can you begin to enact in your own life the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, so that we take the risk of loving the way Jesus loved. We take the risk of investing our money the way Jesus urges us to think about the kingdom and our fears and our uncertainties and our fragility in this world that is broken and fallen. We take the risk of taking Jesus seriously and crying out to God who loves and delights in us. As we finish, I want to just come to another verse that we quoted earlier on in our beginnings of the Sermon on the Mount series, and it's from Matthew 11, and it's that moment when Jesus is looking on individuals and the crowds, and he's aware that they are burdened by their life in the world, and he's looking at how even people internal to Israel have lived with the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're burdened and weighed down. And so Jesus, at the end of Matthew 11, gives us these beautiful words of invitation. I'm going to quote this text using Eugene Peterson's translation from the message. He says this, are you tired? Yes. Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. 
keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is about our discipleship and our formation, that we would come to him and begin to build a life out of him so that you and I begin, begin to learn to live that with that beautiful phrase, freely and lightly, within the unforced rhythms of God's grace in our lives. I want that. You want that. And that's what Jesus is leaving the crowds with on that particular day. As he offers these three different binaries, he sort of says, take me seriously. God is doing something in me, in the world, and you are invited to be participants in this great work of God. May God give us grace to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.